Hello and welcome to Coast to Coast FC, the Canadian soccer podcast focused on all things CPL, Canadian Championship, and more. My name is Filippo Ajejo, and today I am all on my lonesome once again. Unfortunately, due to scheduling issues, Mike couldn't be here today, nor could we get a guest on in time. We even tried to push recording back a day to see if it would fix things. Unfortunately, it did not. But I didn't want to leave you guys hanging after that insane Canadian Premier League final. So I decided to do it all by myself to give you guys all of the content that I'm sure that you want. And I know that everybody wants to talk about all the craziness that happened in extra time of the match. But I'm going to start from the very beginning, including a little bit of the buildup to this match. I'm also going to go over my reactions to the Canadian Premier League awards and the state of the league after I'm done with the coverage of the match, including as well my player of the match. So stay tuned, strap in, listen up, because even though I'm on my own, I'm still going to hit you with all of the facts and stats from the thrilling finale to the 2023 Canadian Premier League season. But before I dive into it, remember to follow us on Instagram, Threads, Facebook, and Twitter at Coast to Coast FC, and on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts, so you know exactly when we upload. But yes, the Canadian Premier League final came and went, and what an incredible match it was. All of the action was saved for extra time, but that doesn't mean that nothing happened in the first 90. Before I even get into the match, I want to talk a little bit about the build-up to the match. Cavalry were going into this undefeated in their last four away games, obviously coming off a solid win over Pacific FC. They had previously lost to Forge in that first v second match, but they were going to try to get revenge and trying to make it a double for Tommy Wielden Jr.'s side. Forge, on the other hand, had only played one match, which was the first v second match, and they Got, did the job in Calgary, winning that match and earning themselves a right to host the Canadian Premier League final at Tim Hortons Field, giving them the home advantage and the opportunity to make it four out of five playoff titles. And I want to talk about the venue itself and the attendance that the CPL final had, because in the end, the final attendance was 13,925. That is a record attendance for a CPL final. And that, I think for me, reflects how much this league has grown, especially in a short amount of time, and specifically this year. I mean, the CPL posted the the record cumulative attendance for this season, and it was 429,915. That's better than last year's, which is 360,832. And the, the league's previous high attendance, cumulative attendance, was in its inaugural season in 2019. So, you know, after, uh, you you could expect that in the first year, obviously there's going to be a boom and then there's going to be a gradual either incline or decline. Well, this time around, it was a slight decline, but now we've gone back and better than 2019, which goes to show how much the league has improved in this year and specifically. 
And I want to say full marks to the league, to one soccer, to the city of Hamilton and the teams for being able to bring such an incredible event together. Cause it wasn't just the final. It was also the awards, the media day. There was a lot of family stuff that was happening before the game. The days that led, it was all, it was a whole fanfare event of a few days for this Canadian premier league final. And I don't think many people can appreciate that it, you know, for a lot of, people a final is just the 90 minutes or in this case the 120 minutes and potentially penalties of a final but for people who want to grow the league for the organizations that want to grow the league it's so much more than just the game being played is the whole occasion around it it's supposed to be extra special as that final capping off event to a fantastic season and at least from a personal point of view i wasn't even there uh, but from a personal point of view, it felt like it rose to that occasion. Of course, the game itself lent into that and helped it out to achieve that that status of a whimsical almost final. Uh, and so that's why uh, we're going to now go into the match itself. Like I said, uh, everyone wants to talk about extra time, but we have to talk about the first and the second half as well. Starting with the first half, it was as... Everyone should have been expecting a cagey start to the game. Cavalry were pressing high on Forge from the get-go. They were not allowing them to really build all that much in the early stages. They were in that 4-2-3-1, but it, it, it kind of morphed into a 4-1-4-1 to try to press, bringing one of the double pivots in alongside Sergio Camargo to press that back line of Forge and not let them build out and try to find those midfield players. And I think that was working really well for the majority of the match and nullifying the way that Forge like to play, just disrupting play, being uh, pestering players on the ball, not allowing them to, to gain any momentum. But Forge, to be fair as well, in the beginning of the game, were doing well to not allow Calvary to hit on the break all that much. I mean, it's difficult to get Akio and Musi really involved down the wings and sort of break at that fullback that they love to do. And that made it so they sort of canceled each other out in the first half. Honestly, there was few chances to really talk about. Musi um, had that free kick from 20-something yards that went over. It was semi-close, not all that much. Meyer Bevan had a half chance uh, on the break. Meyer Bevan, I have to say, throughout this game, I'm going to talk about this uh, a little bit later as well on different occasions, but he was excellent in his center forward play for going out wide and creating space and finding space. He wasn't the center forward that just stays in the middle and is waiting for the ball. No, he was searching for the ball and more importantly, searching for the space so he can get the ball to himself. And for those people who know what the best center forward players in the world do, it's not just get space to try to get the ball and find the ball. It's get space so you can create gaps for other players to occupy and be able to then attack properly and find players in the box or around the box that aren't marked. And there's where you can get those shooting opportunities and there's where you can get the goals. So Meyer Bevan, I mean, really, I was really impressed throughout the game on that. And he had a half chance in the first half due to that. Didn't really do all that much. I think he kind of snatched at it because he was being closed down. And then the only other uh, opportunity I can think of, I think was Batty Batty Banga, had to sort of scoop shot after a little bit of 
good passing play. I think for forwards, they were really lacking. Obviously, this was because of the way that Cavalry were pressing and, and defending, but they were lacking the the classic one-touch passing, those, those little triangles that they love to do. Cavalry were excellent in breaking that down, and without that, Forge really struggled to properly attack. And at the end of the first half, Cavalry, I think, I mean, it was pretty even. I, I would say it was fairly even going into the break, but I felt like Cavalry had a bit of an edge. I mean, you you, you look at the stats themselves, Cavalry had a little bit more possession, 53% to Forge's 47. They had over twice as many shots, seven shots to Forge's three, but only one shot on target for uh, Cavalry, the same amount as for Forge uh, to Betty Banga's scoop shot. So in the end, while Cavalry had more shots, they were more speculative shots and they weren't all taken all that well. But still, it, it was a, a cagey first half, the first half you would expect out of a final, especially between those these two teams. As both teams, it looked like at the beginning, neither one wanted to give the other any advantage, any any they didn't want to cause any mistakes for the other team to capitalize on. And so, obviously, in the first half, neither team wanted to lose. The second half, though, that's where I started to see Cavalry get into a new gear. They sort of started to get out of that that KG first, second gear, that tentative one, just trying to close, forge down, and started to be a bit more adventurous. They began to actually find more freedom on the wings, and they began to be a little bit more direct, catching Forge sleeping at times. I felt like Forge, they weren't as quick on their counterpress, and they weren't as organized in the when they were in caught in transition, and that allowed Cavalry to have more freedom, especially on the wings, especially through Ali Musi. I mean, that's how we what we saw in the 54th minute. Ali Musi got the ball and, and cut inside and, and did a beautiful curling shot that just went wide because Cavalry won the ball back up high and hit Forge on that break, and that was sort of a sign of things to come in the second half. We saw a few minutes later in the 58th that incredible chance for William Accio. I mean, that was probably the chance of the game up until extra time. Forge were once again slacking on the organization and in their counterpress. It was an easy ball over to Musi. Little I forget who exactly it was, but lifted the ball over five Forge players that were starting to crowd the ball carrier, and it went right to Musi, who had so much freedom and space ahead of him, did really well to uh, drive across, uh, across, across. But unfortunately, Meyer Bevan's touch, I think just put Akio off for that tap. And I think he was expecting it to go a little bit behind where it was. So he had to stretch and it was just half a second off. I mean, it was inches wide of his foot from being able to put it as a tap in. And, you know, obviously in hindsight, you see how much of a rude chance that is given what happened later in the match. But it, it didn't stop from there. I mean, Calvary continued to find more and more freedom, be able to build more and more. And again, a huge part of that was not only because of the directness, but the way that the midfield was moving around, giving more space for Ali Musi and Meyer Bevan once again. His movement was incredible. That chance in the 74th minute by uh, Daly, where it was an incredible sort of snapshot save by Tristan Henry, that all started from Meyer Bevan. 
once again, going wide, opening up that space, doing really well to, to cross it to the back post. Akio, very smart. He, you could easily be, you know, swayed into thinking that he should have headed it from that position, but the cross didn't have that much power in it. Akio would have had to looped it over a, a difficult technique. He did really well to just head it back across and then Tom Daly in, in the, in the middle. I don't think he could have done much more. It was a, a snapshot in itself and a snap save from Tristan Henry and another incredible chance. And Tristan Henry, I mean, I'm going to talk about my reaction to the golden uh, glove award because, you know, I, I did not vote for Tristan Henry and I was a little surprised to see him there, but I think in those, you know, situations when all eyes are on, on the pitch, when it's a huge occasion, there are few keepers like Tristan Henry who love to step up. Um, And so he, he just showed what quality he has in that moment and saved forge from a very different fate that they that they ended up having. It could have been a completely different story had Tristan Henry not made that insane save in the 74th minute. And then immediately following that save, Forge just hoof it over, and Benny Betty Banga goes and pressures Eric Kobsa and fouls the defender. I know some people were thinking that wasn't a foul. When you look back at it, he very clearly pulls at the defender, but it shows great determination from Benny to try to, you know, put pressure on that back line. After a huge chance, all of your team is still sort of, you know, recovering from that chance that they just conceded. And he still has the wherewithal to run at the defender, try to put him under pressure. He did a little bit too much and got penalized for it with a foul. But had it been a different occasion, maybe if he would have been a little bit smart, he could have gotten the ball off. And I mean, the finish afterwards, a little lob chip over Carducci. Yes, it was after the whistle already blew for the foul. Still showed that um, he has quality in front of Nets, which, I mean, for people who know, uh, Benny Bettybanga's ability is is shots that he loves to shoot from, from distance. They'll know that that's not any surprise. But again, a little bit of a warning signs for Cavalry that if they commit a, a bit too many men forward, there's always going to be danger. And even though Forge were honestly second best for the majority of the game, especially in the second half, the fact that Benny Bettybanga were still there and still trying to capitalize on any mistake shows uh, how much of a uh, killer instinct he has. And I think after that, the only um, chance that I can think of was uh, Ali Musi shot in the 80th minute. Uh, that was, again, a poor giveaway from Ashinori Johnson. Great way, uh, great counter uh, from Cavalry and Musi shot well-placed, but it wasn't to be uh, for the game winner but that just shows Forge weren't really themselves in in that second half it felt like they were sort of losing grip and I'll be honest I was worried for them going into extra time because it looked like Cavalry were the better team and with the chances they had Cavalry should have been one or two nil up on the night and probably would have should have won the game by one or two goals but thanks to some heroics and to some unfortunate uh, touches from Meyer Bevan, it went into extra time nil-nil. And this is where all of the excitement began. This is where all the storytelling began because 
it was Ali Musi's goal that started it off. Once again, fantastic center forward play by Meyer Bevan. Going wide, getting that ball. Looked like he was pulled down. Referee said no. Great for Bevan to continue to play. Lays it off to, I believe, Daly. And then Daly does a nice little layoff as, uh, again for Ali Musi. And Ali Musi, what a strike. Uh, a picture-perfect curling shot. I would I would have said it was the, you know, the pinnacle, the best curling shot. But unfortunately, he would be bested just a little bit later. Uh, but I'll talk about that in a sec. But a really well-played goal. Again, I think Meyer Bevan did excellent for, for Cavalry and was one of my players of the matches from a Cavalry point of view because of the way he played. And Ali Musi, I mean, player's player of the year. A lot of people were angry that he didn't win the player of the year. But I think that even he, uh, he got that recognition from his peers, which honestly, I think for a player might matter more than what media might vote for. But Ali Musi, incredible player, steps up when this team needs him. And you saw the celebrations afterward. You saw what it meant to this team, what it meant to him. Everyone rushing forward, hugging, celebrating, giving giving a little stick to the home crowd as well. That meant everything. And for me, when I saw that goal go in, I was like, that was deserved. That's a deserved goal. And if things continue in this vein, it will be a deserved result for cavalry even though you know you can never count out forge and that's the thing that uh, i learned very quickly even though i have followed forge for five years working there for four years they can even surprise me when i think they're down and out as literally moments later batty banga steps up once again and the the best thing that could have happened for forge genuinely in that extra time was that early-ish goal from Ali Musi in, in the 101st minute because that was a wake-up call for them. They started to be more adventurous. They started to put more bodies forward. They started to create more problems. I mean, Dominic Samuels had a bit of a half chance uh, shortly after the, the the strike. But in the end, it was Benny Betty Banga who scored a Benny Betty Banger. Apologies for the pun. But it was a fantastic certified golazo. He had no right, let's be honest, to score from there. Kyle Becker does the short corner, and I'm still not convinced that that was exactly what he wanted to do. I think he wanted to whip it towards the back post and got it just a little too right. But regardless, it was inch perfect into the top corner. Absolutely nothing Marco Carducci could have done. And that goal finally gave that injection of energy that Forge needed at 1-1. And it then momentum swung. And it looked more and more likely like Forge were going to be the winners. I think the substitutions played a huge part in, that, in those final mo- uh, moments, in that final half of extra time. And I think it was a... A, a, a battle between Bobby and Tommy Wilden Jr. that Bobby won because Bobby obviously brought in Borges earlier and he will talk about his impact in a little bit, but he also brought in David Chouinier and Jordan Hamilton. I think, and I thought that they gave Forge a little bit more dynamism up front to put more and more pressure uh, for Cavalry, not allowing momentum to swing back their way and to keep their own momentum going. 
and keep that wave after wave of attack. What was baffling for me and why I thought this, I mean, I don't, I don't want to say this decision cost cavalry because it really it was true moments of brilliance that caused cavalry moments of brilliance that I don't think you can plan for. I don't think you can try to avoid for. It's just one of those things that it, it, that's football. Sometimes that happens, but I do think this, it might've been a different story had it not been for the decision for Tommy Wilden Jr. to take off Ali Musi at the half because he was their most dangerous player. He is, he is the player's player of the year for a reason. And the fact that he took him off when it's 1-1, I can understand maybe when it's 1-0 and you want to defend and you want to throw on another defender forward and so you take off an attacking player. Even still, I would be a little confused on why you're taking off Ali Musi. Maybe it's because you think that Meyer Bevan can can press more and be more defensively resolute and obviously that aerial presence. But still, the fact that it was 1-1 and Tommy Wilden Jr. had to take off Musi, I was baffled by. I, I was still not sure certain if anyone mentioned if it was because of an injury or something like that. It looked fine. He looked fine to me. But nevertheless, he took Ali Musi off. And then the second half of extra time happened. And I'll be honest, the second half of extra time sort of is a blur to me right now because there's only one moment that is crystal clear for me. And that was Tristan Bloody Borges rolling back the years way back to 2019 against Halifax in which gorgeous Borges pulled out an Olympical goal from the bellows from the Barton, Barton Street Battalion side to win the game. Obviously, that is one of the most iconic goals, if not the most iconic goal in CPL history. You can talk about Balutabla's goal from last year. Yes, that might be the best goal. But in terms of context, in terms of the buildup, in terms of the situation, I doubt you can find a more iconic goal, especially with the history, knowing that it's Forge, knowing that it's Borges, a player that, you know, he was there from the beginning. He wasn't there all the time because he obviously had that loan towards Belgium, but he was a bit part player for much of this season. He hadn't really had many starts. I think on the commentary said last time he had a start was in early September. Last time he had a goal, I think was in July he wasn't a, a starter for Bobby, but he was still around. And obviously a senior player of Forge, experienced player for Forge. He was there from the very beginning. He's a player that in these important moments, even though he might not show it throughout an entire season, he is the one who can deliver. And just the goal when that went in and you and, and, and from every angle, from every reaction, from Every which way you look at it, it is an absolutely fantastic goal. And the celebration to just lift his hands up. He couldn't believe it. And the fact that he looked straight at the Barton Street Battalion and celebrated with him and put his hands out a la Jude Bellingham was just the cherry on top for such a fantastic goal. And I think I've seen that goal maybe 30 times since it went in from many different angles, and I still can't believe it. Olympical goals are more common than you think with Forge FC, but the fact that it came at a CPL final to win the game in extra time, 
that is just that you can have no better selling point for the league than that. And that's, I think, a, a huge point that is something I, I will build on when I talk about the state of the league. But for the league, they have this moment that, I mean, the American sports outlets were 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 taking notice of CPL with Alexis from CB, CBS Sports Galasso, I think it is, who was invited there and spoke about it. TSN, who people have been hounding for ages, this entire season for not showing soccer content, finally showed some interest through that goal. Tristan Borges not only delivered Forge FC their fourth uh, playoff title, but delivered the league a perfect moment to sell to the rest of Canada to North America and potentially even even further, why you should pay attention to this league, because this you you couldn't have written that moment. It would have been the same thing as if Paris G's bicycle kick goal, um, and uh, with York United against I think it was Pacific would have counted. You couldn't have written it. Fantastic goal. The celebration's incredible. And Forge held on until the very end. And again, Forge, I personally think we're second best for the majority of the gaming, even including most of the second half and most of the first half of extra time. But they did enough to win on two moments of brilliance. And I think it's telling that Tommy Wilden Jr. after the match even mentioned that, that he thought his team deserved to win, but it came down to two moments of brilliance. And Benny Betty Banga said after the game as well, what do winners do? Winners win. And Forge have that in their DNA. They dug deep and they found those miracles to earn themselves that championship and clinch four out of five. And yes, a lot of people will say that that's actually not a great thing for the league to have one team dominate. And while I agree that it would be nice to have some variety, Forge, you can't help but but to just admire the way that Forge are run and the way that Forge step up when it matters the most. Because again, like I mentioned, that's in their DNA. That's who they are. As someone who worked in the club for four years, you can see it in the day in and the day out. You can see it from all levels, from the kit men to this to the coaching staff to the operations staff that I was a part of, all the way to the very top. They take it super seriously and they always want to improve. And that's what gives Forge, I honestly think, a little bit of that edge over other teams. But it's something that I, I'm hoping that other teams in the CPL can sort of reach it's a goal that they can reach and as forge continues to raise the bar if other teams raise the floor then the ceiling can only get higher as well so it's a it's a cumulative thing it's not just on forge but i think forge is a spearhead of your league i know a lot of people a lot of fans from other teams like to hate on them and want anyone to win but forge and trust me i get that as as a fan of other teams and other leagues that are dominated by teams. But from a holistic per- perspective to have a team like forge, I'm so excited to see how they do in the, in the CONCACAF champions cup, same with cavalry, because with the performances that they had 
uh, throughout the season with the performance that they even had in this final, which I still think if you look across the 120 minutes, who deserved to win? Cavalry deserved to win. If they can just be able to create the, their own few moments of brilliance. I mean, they did create one through Ali Musi. Evidently, was enough, but they just keep continuing to create those moments that I wouldn't be surprised if they can, they and Forge can pull out some surprises in the 2024 Champions Cup. But that is the game review from the Canadian Premier League final. I thoroughly enjoyed that match. I'm hoping you did too. If you were there in the stadium, if you were just watching, if you caught a replay, even if you just watched the highlights, I hope that it proved to you what this league can be. And hopefully with all of us together, both media, fans, the teams, the players, the coaches, everyone involved, we continue to grow the league so we can have more games as wild, as as roller coaster of emotions as that match was. But now I'm going to move on to my reaction to the Canadian Premier League awards. Obviously that happened I believe it was Thursday night and uh a pretty good uh overall uh, award show I think. It was a little interesting to have uh, the one soccer crew on the couch talking about the players in front of them. I appreciate Andy Petrillo making that joke of, isn't this weird? It felt weird for me. I can only imagine how weird it felt for the players. But, I mean, the trophies were beautiful and fantastic indigenous arts. So, again, something I, I very much appreciate that the league has, has, has done is invited these indigenous artists to make, honestly, some of the best-looking trophies I have ever seen. And so I'm going to go over some of the winners, starting off with with Coach of the Year. Obviously, those who watched uh, the Coast to Coast Canadian Premier League Awards episode, I was the odd one out, and I voted for Patrice Geyser. I've really come to appreciate everything that he's been able to do for Halifax, especially in his first season. And I, that's who I voted for in my media vote. But I, uh, but Alex and and Mike both voted for Tommy Wilden Jr. And Evan, and and in the end, they were <laughs> correct. And who the winner was, Tommy Wilden Jr. Well deserved. I mean, I'm you know just because I voted for Patrice Geyser doesn't mean I don't think Tommy is a worthy winner. Everything he's been able to accomplish with Cavalry, the way that he's adapted this season, the way that he's had fresh ideas, be able to meld so beautifully and and just fit together perfectly with his still his principles and the way that he likes to play and goes to show that an old dog can learn new tricks and uh and evidently it uh, allowed his team to finish the season strong with that regular season championship so congratulations to tommy defender of the year i'm gonna talk to defender of the year first dan clomp that one was an easy shout. I want. I only voted Dan Nimick because I wanted to recognize him because he is. I mean, if there was a, a rookie of the year, he would definitely win rookie of the year be, for me because fresh out of college to have the season that he had, the amount of goals that he had, the, the ball playing ability that he has. He's someone that again I'm in for most likely to uh, be a Canadian men's national team star. He was my choice. Because I genuinely think in that center back position, in in the same sort of mold as Stephen Victoria, that's that that's his natural air, and I think Dan Nimick has so much potential uh, uh, on him to go as far as he wants. Genuinely, 
but in the end, obviously, it went to Dan Klomp, who was uh, no surprise, as I mentioned, an absolute leader at the back, ever present, ever solid. Just even though he's in the captain, he is that leader in the back line. And he's always so reliable, a goal scoring threat, a set piece threat. He was the entire package for a center back. And uh, obviously that was enough also for him to win player of the year. And I know a couple of people were surprised because of that, because they thought that Ali Musi would win, especially with the fact that player of the year, I think in most leagues across the world, tend to be dominated by attacking players. That's just the the nature of the game. In the end, people tune in to watch incredible goals and plays and dribbles because that's the more entertaining part. I think only the diehard fans and potentially defenders in themselves look at uh, those center backs making that crucial tackle or interception or block and, and revering that over that those you know winning goals and and incredible golazos so usually i tend to see these awards dominated by attacking players so i actually really appreciate that they chose dan clump over the likes of ali musi and manny aparicio and lorenzo caligari all fantastic players in and of themselves all had really great seasons across all of 2023 manny aparicio you could say kind of faded out towards the the end of of the second half but uh had a little bit of a resurgence in the playoffs i would think but yeah no dan clomp uh, again i think that was who i went voted for in in my media votes and i think he was very well deserved for all the reasons i said before and i i genuinely appreciate the fact that we're recognizing defenders because when they have stellar years and they have stellar seasons as dan clomp did in the end then they deserve to be recognized for it. But Ali Musi was not going to be denied again because when we when it was for the players player of the year, obviously a vote that I did not get to vote in because I'm not a player. Um he was voted the winner out of his peers. And like I mentioned earlier, I think that that might matter more than the media vote because these are the people that you're going up against day in and day out. Not only your teammates who are really obviously are gonna either vote for you or Dan Klong, but the people that you're against, the people that sometimes might not like you because of uh, the fact that you're playing on the opposite side of the pitch, but the fact that they still respect you enough to vote for you as a player of the year, I think is just as uh, as important, if not more, from a player's standpoint as the media voted player of the year. So fantastic for Ali Musi. Just, an, I mean, it's an incredible season. I, I, I struggle to find different words for his performance and the ones that I've used before because we've sung his praises here on Coast to Coast FC so many times. But, I mean, a spectacular player for day in and day out. He had a little bit of a stagnant start. I mean, Calvary did in general. But as soon as he started to, you know, pick up some speed, pick up some momentum, then it was he was a, a runaway train for Calvary in the way that he liked to play and the chances he would create. And he was unplayable at times, so many times throughout the season where the opposite fullback would get skinned time and time and time again, wouldn't be able to uh, deal with him on that wing. And uh, yeah, just a fantastic player overall, well-deserving of that player's player of the year. Now let's get to the Golden Glove. Because for me, this was the most contentious award 
And again, this is coming from someone that worked for Forge and was a fan of Forge. And I love Tristan Henry. And I genuinely think he is one of the best keepers the league has seen, if not the best keeper this league has seen. That being said, I think that this award should have gone to Marco Carducci. I, that's who I voted for in my media vote. That's who I, I voted for in my Coast to Coast FC awards. And I think it was Alex who said it was because of consistency that Marco Carducci should have won. Actually, that's a lie. I I, I fibbed. I went for Ryan Yesley in the and the and the votes, not Marco Carducci. I chose Marco Carducci in my regular season team of the season. Um but in the end, I either one of those I think consistently were better than Tristan Henry. Obviously, Ryan Nestle with a worse team ahead of him, a worse defense than both Carducci and Tristan. And even between Carducci and Tristan, if you look at the stats, I'm not gonna go over them all again. If you want to see a comparison between Carducci and Yesley, I implore you to go listen to the award episode because I go pretty in deep to try to defend myself as to why I voted for Yesley. Um but if you look at the stats, they were both, honestly, in some in some sets, leagues away from Tristan Henry. I think what Tristan Henry had over both of them is ha- he had some higher highs. He had some games where he single-handedly won the game for Forge or kept it at a draw and saved them a point. He had some man-of-the-match performances all by himself that we really didn't see from Marco Carducci and from Ryan Yesley. And I think maybe because of that, maybe because of the whole, a little bit of Hollywood saves and the Hollywood performances, that's what earned him the Golden Glove. I'm not saying that he is an undeserving winner. Again, I think he is a fantastic goalie and he has been pretty good throughout the season. He had some mistakes in him. He had some sort of low points throughout the season. But it's still, I mean, he, he made the finals list. Um, could you say that maybe a Jan Fillion deserved to be over him or a Gian Sopolis deserved to be over him? I could hear that conversation. I could sort of understand why or how somebody could make that argument. But nevertheless, in the end, Tristan Henry uh, won the award and congratulations to him for the season that he had. And like I said, you look at that moment in the final where he saved that that, that snapshot from uh from daily and then you just realize okay maybe maybe this guy is uh, the golden glove winner because of moments like this and and i still think that's probably why he was voted in uh, as the golden glove winner in the end but last but not least is the under 21 player of the year and it was it was always going to be mateo de brienne not to say that Kwasi Poku or James Cameron didn't have a shout. Obviously, the story of James Cameron as somebody who was there, present for a lot of it, seeing him uh, at the home games, going from somebody who wasn't with the team at all, then started to play you know, a little bit of a role to then, because of injuries and because of some poor performances, was thrown in. Thrown into the Sharks, let's be honest, because it was, it was a, a time... Uh, uh, for Vancouver FC where they weren't playing well but he did really well he responded really well he grew into his position mind you he is not a fullback when they signed him if you go back to their announcement of signing him to the the super young developmental contract thing I don't remember the name for 
And TJ, they called him a winger. That was his position beforehand, but he transitioned into a fullback on the right, which is a stronger foot, and even on the left, which is not a stronger foot. And he managed to do a job. So at 18 years of age is incredible James Cameron and Quasi Poku. I mean, he he was ever since the retirement of Ashton Morgan from that left back position, he, he's been great on that left side, whether it be left back, left wing back or left wing. He was everywhere for Forge, created so many chances, was pretty decent defensively. I, I thought that that would be a weak point of his, but I think he really grew into his defensive ability as the season wore on. And I think he was a, a very important player for Forge, despite that they only finished second um but in the end it was had to be mateo because valor if we're being honest did not have a fantastic season had a pretty poor season all things considered especially with the recruitment that they brought in a lot of international players i think some people had high hopes for this team and they just failed to deliver Obviously, injury issues at the very beginning cost them a lot. But even afterwards, it never really felt like things were clicking for Phil Dos Santos. But if you go and listen to the episode where we had that Phil Dos Santos interview, you'll sort of see how he recognizes that and wants to build on maybe not focusing so much on the international now, but focusing on the domestic because these are players that can get much more accustomed to the league and then be able to properly have a philosophy imposed on them and then adopt it and execute it faster than maybe this Valor team had. But despite Valor not having a fantastic season, Matteo de Brienne had an amazing season for that. A player that really was, was he going to be a starter? Was he going to be, you know, the star at the beginning of the season? I don't think many people really thought so, but when he actually played, he was Valor's most dynamic, dangerous, and energizing player on the pitch by far. Anytime that he was on the left, even when he was playing left back, I still felt like he was the main threat for Valor. As soon as after his injury, he got pushed up to left wing. That's where I think we saw Matteo De Brienne at his very best. And we saw how like like dynamic he is on the ball, how he's not afraid. Obviously, as a young player, you're going to tend to be more fearless. And that can be a bit of a detriment at times if you're not smart or clever on, on when you should drive forward and when you should maybe turn back and pass or turn or pass inside. But Mateo is already showing years ahead of maturity in his decision making for I would say most of the season and he provided Valor with these moments of joy that were severely lacking for the team so overall an absolute pleasure to watch throughout the season was my choice in the media vote in the team he was I even mentioned in the under 21 team of the season that we did uh, some weeks earlier that he was my vote for the under 21 player of the year it was he he was i think the runaway winner the most runaway winner of any of these awards i think was mateo de brienne so congratulations to him a well-deserved winner i'm excited to see how he continues to grow in his career but now i'm gonna go to my state of the league reaction so for those who didn't know 
the commissioner, the CPL commissioner, Mark Noonan, had a little bit of a, a statement for the uh, media on media day to talk about the state of the league ahead of 2024. So I'm not going to go over the whole thing. I'm going to go over some of the points that were said. Uh, I'm reading it off of True North Foot's little summarized picture that they put. You can check them out on Twitter uh, to see it for yourself. But basically what Mark Noonan was talking about was that he has currently 15, actually then 15, I think now 16. Wouldn't be surprised if it's up to 17 now uh, since more and more groups are joining or even more after that CPL final. But in the teens, let's say, groups of interested parties that are currently under NDAs that are looking to invest in CPL expansion teams. Now, that doesn't mean that there are 15, 16, 17 cities or individual teams that are being are looked at to being added to, to the league. That's not what he was getting at. But these are groups that want to invest in building a team. It could be Maybe it's a case of two or three groups coming together to to bring a team into um, CPL. Maybe it's only one, and they start to do some competition between the others. I don't I don't know what's going to happen, but in the end, various groups are interested in investing in CPL expansion teams. That being said, for next season, the CPL will stay at eight teams. But, Noonan said, he is aiming to have two new teams in both 2025 and 2026. So that would mean that for 2025, we will have 10 teams in CPL. And for 2026, we will have 12 teams in the CPL. He also mentioned an update on the York United situation, saying that there was going to be a world-class ownership group coming for York United in the next 30 days. And lastly, he w- talked about VAR, which for those regular listeners of Coast to Coast know that me and Mike are huge proponents of VAR in the league. He said that the league is looking into it heavily, but that the cost is a big hurdle. He's balancing the potential cost of VAR with them, what money could... It could be used elsewhere for the CPL, such as more under 18 roster spots. Now I'm going to go into my reactions and I'm going to start from there and work my way back uh, into the earlier points. VAR, I was a bit disappointed in this. I can sort of understand if some of the money that he wants to try to invest in other places, such as more under 18 spots, is the priority I can understand that, but this season has shown that the level of officiating when it's unaided and unassisted by technology is just not good enough. There have been time and time again on this podcast where me and Mike have talked about some huge referee error that has cost a team points, a result, a win, and we saw how tight and close the end of the season was in the end of the season positions and one point or three points can make all the difference for a team in their aspirations for the playoff and where they end up in the playoff in this new playoff format. So fine. If you don't, if you don't think you can invest in VR because of how costly it is, I also don't understand how costly it really will be given that all you need is your... I mean, most of the time, the VAR officials aren't in 
the the stadium uh, around the in in where VAR is around the world. They're in separate offices all together, and then all you need is VAR screens. Uh, so I don't know, understand really how that maybe the cost is a huge hurdle. Maybe there's stuff that I don't know about, you know, behind the scenes and 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 with with other extra costs. So I'm not gonna you know hone too much in on that. But if you're not going to invest in VAR, then you have to try to work, especially since it's CSB. CSB has to work with Canada Soccer to invest into better resources, better education, better training for referees. Because a lot of the referees in the CPL are sort of up-and-comers for referees, in terms of referees. And we want them to succeed because just like other players and coaches, they are part of the Canadian soccer environment. And I know nobody likes referees, quote-unquote, but they, you know are a huge part of the growth of the league as well. And if they get better, hopefully they will have less mistakes and hopefully they'll be able to perform to a better level that is deserved for a growing league, an exciting growing league like the CPL. So I'm hoping that if you don't invest into VAR, even VAR light, whatever that might look like, then there has to be something said about the level of officiating and how we can improve that because you saw what Bobby and and Kyle Becker said in that one post match press conference where they blew up on the refs. Yes, obviously there's a lot of emotion behind it. Yes, there's a lot of frustration behind their words, but there is a lot of truth behind it as well. And we need to better the level of officiating to better the league. I don't think this league can improve all that much more, regardless of how many teams you add, regardless of how many more exciting young players, more exciting foreign players, maybe even a couple of, you know, star players that you want to add. I don't think they can raise that ceiling all that much more until the refereeing comes to a more acceptable level. So that's my thoughts on the VAR comments. On the world-class ownership group for York United, I'm very interested to see on what that is. I don't want to play on rumors too much because I've seen some rumors of who it can be. What is more important is that I'm hoping that for this ownership group, they recognize what York United stand for. They recognize the challenges ahead of York United because of where they are situated, because of the competitions in the area. And I'm hoping that they can find what is best for the team. Find them a home For those of you who listened to our York United special club episode, you'll know that we talked to uh, the York United superfan Namu Yoon about what he's looking for in the new ownership group. And he mentioned uh, Woodbine as a potential place for their new stadium because of the York Lions stadium being confused with a university team. I hope that when you have an a new investment group, a new ownership group coming into, they recognize these little things that will matter, not only to obviously the marketing and the competition and the business side of things, but to the fans, because, you know, that's what is the lifeblood of any football team is the fans. And they will want a proper home with the right resources, with the right tools to be able to succeed and hopefully, you know, compete on the level of the likes of Pacific Cavalry and Forge in the future. Now we're going to go into the whole expansion thing. And the, the, the part about 
16, 17, whatever, 18 NDAs looking into invest into CPL expansion teams. That's fantastic. That's great news. But that also doesn't say all that much about what they could be. Because a lot of interest is fantastic, but where are they interested in? What are the teams, what are the cities that they're interested in? Because we saw what happened with Saskatoon this year and in the fact that their their expansion what was um i think i don't i don't remember even if it was confirmed or not but it was almost very heavily implied that saskatoon was going to be the next expansion team and it never really came to be and i believe then the stadium was was repurposed for something else and it sort of died there i'm hoping that we get a little bit more clarity in this offseason as to what are the cities that are, have the most interest from these, you know, 15, 16, 17 uh, NDA groups, how they're looking to invest in it, what that sort of will look like in terms like, obviously, you can't say what a new team is going to be before it's even being created before, you know, and there's any paperwork done about even giving a group the 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 option to put a team into the league. But I would love to know from the commissioner's perspective of like what he wants from a new team, because we saw with Vancouver FC that maybe because of the way, the way that FC Edmonton folded, they were sort of rushed into coming into the league early. Maybe they were, you know, um, Rob friend has always said that they, they were six months to a year early in, in their plan to bring this team to Langley. So maybe it was that that sort of forced their hand, and they struggled uh, from firsthand. I can I can uh, reveal to you, it's like they struggled at the beginning too. They were still building their front office, their back office, their staff, everything. It was it was a hectic first few weeks and few months for Vancouver FC, and after the fall of the Eddies and everything that happened with the Eddies, it, it's going to be a lot more of a rigorous process now to bring a team into the cpl because having a team fold if you look at leagues around the world isn't necessarily new and it isn't necessarily you know the spell of doom but if one becomes two and two becomes three and it starts to have this domino effect there's where it has trouble so obviously i'm sure mark noon is going to want to have these you know, potentially invested groups to have a much more thorough plan to be, have a much more well thought out structure for how they want to do things and look at how they can have some longevity into it. Because it isn't just for the next few years, it's for as long as we want this league to exist. So that could be 10, 15, 20 years Obviously, depending on how things evolve with Canada soccer and CSB. But let's just say that this league can last 10, 15, 20 years. How will the team be able to grow in 10, 15, 20 years alongside the league? And that's a huge part as well. It's not even just these teams that are coming in, these expansion sites. But it's how is the league going to help market these new teams coming in? Because this is something that is present even in in the, the teams that are already in the league is that they're kind of 
struggling to market themselves because they only have a high enough ceiling of the league. The league is doesn't try to market themselves more and try to find better ways to market themselves then there's only so far as each individual team can do. So there's a lot of work both on the side of, you know, the investment groups and those that are approving the investment groups, but the league in general to try to get these teams uh, into the league for 2025 and 2026. And having two, two, two new teams in 2025 and two new teams in 2026, having 12 teams in total will make for an exciting World Cup year, I think, especially if, all of the, those four new teams come in prepped and ready to go. You know, I'm not expecting, you know, Cincinnati uh, or, or rather you can expect a Cincinnati esque expansion year. I want to say like an Atlanta United esque expansion year or St. Louis one more recently. But the fact that these teams can come in with a bit more structure, a bit more organization, a better sort of feel of the of the league, and then they'll make their mistakes in the first year. But as long as they're all competitive and it makes the league as competitive as this year or more, that's what I'll be looking for in 2026 from these teams. Because as much as I love Forge, I want to see new teams lift that beautiful new North Star Cup. I want to see different teams lifting the, the North Star Shield. You know, I want to see different competitions, different players stepping up, different coaches stepping up, different teams having... Very different seasons than other teams and very different seasons than the seasons they had previous. And that all comes with having a, a, a very competitive league with very many teams being on the same level of parity as we saw in this season as as other teams in the league. So I'm hoping that that is what can transpire in 2024 and 2025 or 2025 and 2026 when the expansion teams are announced. And I, I'm curious to hear from you, the listener, where you would like this these teams to, to pop up. What cities would you like to see them? Would you like more maritime teams? Obviously, I think Quebec is priority number one, in my opinion, uh, because we have no representation from Quebec. And I think that's crucially important if you want to have a Canadian Premier League to represent a province in Canada, even if people... Quebec don't want to be part of Canada. But nevertheless, to have that kind of representation, I think, is vitally important. And then, yeah, uh, obviously a team um, more in the middle of the country. Uh, I don't I wouldn't even mind like a Windsor. You know, there's a lot of different places. Kelowna, there's a lot of different places you could potentially go on. I'm curious to see what you guys think of where uh, the next uh, expansion team should come from. But that is from the for me for the weekend itself. I'm not going to go into the last uh, part of the show, which will be the player of the match. Uh, for me, it was an easy answer, despite, again, the fact that Forge weren't at their very best for a majority of the game. Benny Betty Banga not only came up with uh, anything you can do, I can do better moment against Ali Musi, but he was just their most dangerous player. He was always a threat to Cavalry. He had fantastic movement. He has that X factor, and I've mentioned this many times, that X factor that Forge have been dying for this season. And as soon as they brought him in, it is no surprise that that is when Forge's trouble started to be turned around and they started to get momentum right before the playoffs. And honestly, I don't think Forge 
would be lifting the North Star Cup had it not been for Betty Betty Banga's arrival to the team earlier this season. So that is why he is my player of the match. But that is all for this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening to this last match day review episode. And before I go into the usual outro spiel, I just want to say thank you so much to all of the people who have been listening throughout the season to us. I know Mike's not here, but he will. I'm sure he would echo my sentiments here. Thank you so much for all of the support to the new listeners, to the listeners that listen week in and week out, to the people that talk about us on Reddit and Discord and on Twitter, to the people that share our podcast, that that are faithful listeners that try to get other people involved. You're all helping us grow and, and continue to be this, you know, I mean, it's it's a podcast, but we want it to be so much more. We want it to be a place where we can recognize not just the professional side of the league, but all of the fans and the community and getting more people involved and being able to give a more media slash professional side of things and have that be more accessible to the everyday listener. And we have a lot of things planned for the future. We're working on a couple of secret projects. Uh, Do not worry, we are not stopping. We are going to continue creating episodes throughout the off-season. We're probably going to go back down to one episode a week, starting with this week and this episode, but that doesn't mean that the content is going to stop there. We have a lot of exciting ideas for upcoming shows, some fun team challenges, a a few more of special club episodes. We're going to see if we can get more interviews with coaches and players and pundits and analysts and just bring you as much as we can during this off-season so you can be up and running, excited and ready for 2024 to the level that I know me and Mike already are despite the season just ending. So thank you so much. Please continue to support us because we want to just create the best possible content that we can for you and help grow the league all together. But make sure to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Threads, and Facebook once again so that you can help us grow and also so you can give us your thoughts on each of the week's episodes. If you have any comments about how my performance was, if you thought I did better on this solo episode than you did that I than I did on the last episode, if you thought I did worse, uh, as long as you're nice, please, uh, that would be very much appreciated. And yeah, we can give you shouts out, shout outs on the shows. If you have any cool ideas for upcoming episodes, we are more than happy to take on some ideas from the community but until next time i'm felipe ojejo and this has been coast to coast fc signing out